Welcome back to MLST. Today we're exploring the innovative world of artificial intelligence in search technology with Perplexity AI, which is a groundbreaking startup that's making waves in the conversational search space. We also have the opportunity to interview the co-founder and CEO, Dr. Aravind Srinivas, to learn more about this remarkable technology and the driving force behind it. Perplexity AI, despite being a relatively small startup, has managed to create a powerful and reliable search engine with a mere $3 million in funding. They've achieved impressive results in Citation Recall, which was highlighted by a recent Stanford study uh, titled Evaluating Verifiability in Generative Search Engines. The study found that Perplexity AI's search engine provided comprehensive and accurate citations, ensuring that the information that users received is trustworthy and verifiable. This achievement is a testament to the dedication and expertise of the team, which focuses on execution quality and speed. Perplexity AI's impact on users is evident by some of the inspiring stories shared by its customers. I mean, there was one user in particular who's been researching foods helpful for late-stage prostate cancer, found that Perplexity AI was an invaluable resource due to its reliable citations. The user even reported a reduction in the amount of cancer in their body, showcasing the profound impact that Perplexity AI can actually have on people's lives. Now, let's introduce Aravind Srinivas, the CEO and co-founder of Perplexity AI. Aravind has an impressive background in AI and technology, and some may even remember that he was the second ever guest on MLST at the very beginning. Um, he's got a dual degree in electrical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology and a PhD in computer science from UC Berkeley. Aravind has interned at leading organizations like DeepMind and Google, and he's worked as a research scientist at OpenAI, focusing on language and diffusion generative models. In 2022, he co-founded Perplexity AI with the goal of creating an impactful and reliable conversational search engine which can transform the way that we access and process information. Also, there's some really exciting news today. Not only has Perplexity just dropped GPT-4 support, so you can click on the enhanced option in their menu, they have also um, announced a partnership with Wolfram Alpha. So you can go on there and you can select Wolfram Alpha and you can, with language, describe anything you want to do. It'll be converted into a Wolfram Alpha representation and then you see the results back in uh, symbols, text and images. So please, folks, check this out. This is amazingly cool. Um, funnily enough, I signed up for the um, you know, the plugins feature on ChatGPT about a month ago or even more than a month ago, and I've still not got access to it, whereas right now you can do it on Perplexity. So what are you waiting for? Go and check it out. So we're incredibly excited to have Aravind join us today to share more about the journey of Perplexity AI, the technology powering the search engine, and their vision for the future of AI-driven search engines. So let's welcome Dr. Aravind Srinivas. Enjoy. Aravind, it's an absolute honor to welcome you to MLST. Of course, we've already uh, introduced you, but uh, tell, tell the audience, what are you all about? And, and tell us about Perplexity. Thank you, Tim, for having me here. I'm the co-founder and CEO of this company called Perplexity AI. It's a new startup that we founded last year in September. And our mission is to build the world's most knowledge-centric platform for learning, especially centered around question and question answering. So we built the world's first answer engine, if you may call it that, 
where you directly get your answers to questions rather than seeing a bunch of links. So imagine ChatGPT, which is obviously the rage right now, but that can back up what it says by citing relevant links. So that's what we put out to the world in December last year. And we made it conversational in January and we kept following it up with more product features like Chrome extensions and iOS app and Wikipedia like user interface and so on. So it's sort of evolved into this sort of knowledge hub that people go to for learning more about things and sharing what they learned with other people. And our mission is to expand that more and more and be the world's most knowledge center company eventually. So I've been using your iOS app and I think it's absolutely amazing. And one thing to sketch out is we've already had access to Google for 20 years. So it's not mm -hmm. like the information isn't out there, but there's something really interesting about removing that extra bit of friction. Yeah. So Google is probably the world's most complicated software product ever built. If you think about it, the amount of customization they do per query, if you ask like about Tim Scarf, but you can ask about like the life score in a sports game, or you can ask news about Elon Musk, all of it goes through the same search bar. But the way the results are rendered is so different for each query. And it all happens in milliseconds. It's pretty insane that a system like that has been built. So all credit to them for taking this mission that they have of, you know, making information universally accessible and useful for the last 20 years. However, in the business interests, they've started throwing more ads in most of the searches now. In fact, there is a joke that the bigger the font size of ads on Google, the more revenue they make in a quarter, like <laughs> historically. Uh, in the beginning, they had no ads, and then they started showing it on the side in small font. And slowly, the small font uh, started appearing right below the search bar rather than on the side. And then the font of the ads became as big as the search results. And now, like for most queries, the first five links are sponsored links. And then the bottom five links are sponsored links. And your results are somewhere in between, and you kind of have to sift through and find out what you really want. And that's not the purpose of a search engine, right? Ultimately, the, the real mission is to just deliver the answer to the user. The user came to your platform to learn about something and your goal is to serve the user's need. And otherwise, the, your business interests are not the user's interests. And so in the long term, you can only build a successful company if you are completely aligned with the user. You may not be aligned with the shareholders in the short term, but eventually they both will align. So we took a different perspective here. We thought like, okay, Google's amazing, but... Um, gone is the era of clicking and sifting through links and finding out what you really want from reading them. Um, and then a powerful tool emerged last year towards the end in the form of chat GPT or GPT 3.5, if you may call it that way, um, that has this amazing ability to understand text and really carry out your tasks in natural language. And we thought we could combine the best of that with the best of search engines, marry them together in the most ideal way, complementary way, to create this unique user experience and UI that just gives you the answer 
also gives you a few links if you want to read them and make sure what we're saying is correct, but not more than three to five links. And that already made a lot of people's experience like so much better. They were like, oh man, like I don't have to look through this clutter. It's not that people stop clicking on links. They're like some still like a lot of people click on the links we serve. It's just that like somehow they feel like they've been suffocated in a room with like hardly any oxygen and then they got this fresh air where there's so much decluttered UI and directly ingesting answers and making the process of asking questions even more fun and making the process of learning even more fun. And so that, that that's actually why we, as a startup, are able to like grow really fast because people really wanted this and we were at the right time to provide this to them. Yeah, the learning thing's interesting. So I think large language models, they have a simultaneous effect of making you more lazy, but also giving you mental capacity to focus on things and have a depth that you would normally never even imagine. But I wanted to go back quickly because you were talking about the advertising. Yeah. And when when folks go to Perplexity, and I've been using it all the time, it, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So it completely personalizes the search experience. Yeah. And what it does is it kind of virtualizes over all of that structure and information that you would otherwise need to hold in your mind. But I guess like, there's a couple of risks to that. So one thing I wanted to ask you is about if you did introduce something like advertising, how might you do it? Yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting question. So I think advertising is not like an evil thing. Uh, you know, we, we do want ads sometimes like we are, it, it really depends on the intent of the query. Like if you are looking for the best sneakers to wear for running, uh, you are actually looking to buy something or at least looking to gather enough information to buy something. And so then you need to get links relevant to a merchant who's trying to sell on your platform. So those things are pretty relevant for ads. So you kind of have to really figure out like which queries really need these sponsored links and which do not. And I I come from an academic background. Um, and so one thing I've noticed people do in research papers is two kinds of citations. One citation is where the work really influences your work. And so that's often cited in the introduction and related work and things like that. And other kinds of citations are sort of like mentioned citations. You're like, you know, oh yeah, these people have also done it. Um, so that just, you don't piss some people off. Like, you know, you, you just make sure everyone's given due credit, even though that paper may not be as impactful. And some citations suggest not even mentioned citations. Like they're just there in the paper, right? Uh, and so you can sort of think about links in the citation era with answer engines in similar categories, like, really relevant links that should not be influenced by people paying for getting cited. And then some links that are not like super relevant, but you can still cite them or add as additional context. Like if we, we have this thing called like, you know, detailed and concise. So we can have some more toggles there saying like additional context and like there you can sort of pay for getting displayed there. But it should be at the interest of the user to see that and not like put right in front of their face or something. And I think only one consumer product I use has really gotten ads right, Instagram. Like I, I don't find it very, you know, distracting. In fact, it's actually pretty relevant. So when the ads are super relevant, you might actually enjoy them. Uh, like if you've seen been seeing travel reels about like say Switzerland or something, and you see a lot about more 
ads related to that, that's kind of nice. You, you actually might want to see that, right? So, uh, so re if, if you kind of nail relevance, which is where LLMs can even help even more because they understand the true relevance even better than just clicking data. I think you can get the ads experience even better than what currently exists on Google. Yeah, so I, I want to get to the relevance, but just to um, rewind a tiny bit. So yeah, ChatGPT, it was a significantly smaller model, but because of the way it was trained with this instruct tuning, um, it produced results which are very much in the, the style that we would recognize as being relevant and, and useful. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about the relevance thing, which is... Um, Right now, when you go on Google, they have this PageRank system, and it's not just mm -hmm. PageRank. They look at the number of clicks, and they, they do a whole bunch of stuff. But it's kind of like one level of virtualization. So you have some intuition on how the relevance ranking works. Yeah. And and then when we do stuff like this retrieval augmented generation, so we put a query in, we go to a search engine, we um, inject all of that information into the prompt, and then we produce relevant results. Mm -hmm. And the results that we inject in, um, I don't know whether whether there's some principled way of doing that, but I, I guess I'm saying when you when you have two levels of virtualization, it's no longer as intelligible to the user which information is being prioritized. Yeah. Um, actually, that's a good question there. Um, one thing I'm proud of about what we did at Perplexity is we uh, display the links in the sources panel and if you actually expand it, the specific text that was used from the links for the LLM prompt is also shown to the user for the interpretability aspect. So you could imagine doing something like that even for ads so that it's even more transparent process than who's bidding the most. Uh, currently on Google, my understanding, uh, the way it works is there's two mechanisms. One is the cost per click and the other is cost per view. And for each of these, there is a bidding price based on the frequency of the keyword. And these advertisers go and bid on these keywords and phrases. And some pay for being clicked and some pay for just being viewed. And the system sort of takes both these prices and uh, uses the data of like how many people are clicking on that particular advertisers link and figures out a way to boost them up in search results relevant to those keywords. So if you pay a lot for getting clicked, but nobody clicks on you, then the system penalizes you, but you, you kind of have to end up getting paid more. But if you're already getting viewed a lot with a relevance algorithm, then you don't have to pay as much or something. It's a little bit, it's, it's more of a complicated system that uh, merges two incentives, which are, are, which are sort of against each other. One is like paying a lot to get clicked, and the other is making sure you show what's relevant. On the other hand, with an LLM, you can actually make all this pretty transparent uh, by showing exactly the snippet that was used in the relevance ranking. So the user can understand like why a certain link got popped up because they can actually look at the snippet that was used. And we could even ask the advertiser to write a natural language a rationale for why they need to get cited okay. and and that that could also be used in the prompt right when you do the retrieval augmented generation do you indicate to the language model what the relevance was on the underlying search index or is it kind of like um these results all have equal weight uh -huh. um 
I think we don't do not do that right now, but that's a, that's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, for I example, if, um, yeah, I, I tried Bing GPT, and mm -hmm. when you ask it about me, there's an old website that I haven't updated in about five years, and that yeah. says I've got a different job title, that's, and it kind of mixes that in because it yeah. doesn't seem to realize that well, LinkedIn is obviously up to date and authoritative. So why is it why is that information on a level playing field? Yeah, so I think this is complicated, right? Like, for example, that's the case for you. Um, for some other user, they might not have updated their LinkedIn in a while, but they might keep their personal website pretty up to date. Hmm. Um, like, for, I, I can give you an example. Like, Andre Karpathy, uh, for a while, did not even update his LinkedIn. I don't even know if it's up to date yet in terms of whether he's currently working at OpenAI or not. Uh, but he updated his website to saying he's a former Tesla Autopilot director. And so now, like, for Tim Scarf, it's different. But, like, for Andre, it's different, right? Like, and then both are pretty famous people. So you can't say, like, one thing is more important than the other. So the way I see it is, like, allow the user to sort of edit these things and publish things too. Uh, which is why we added this feature to edit sources. You can remove some sources that you think is old or corrupting the result and then you can uh, save that and like we're going to add options for users to publish some queries and then that can get indexed by a search engine and that can get cited by perplexity in a sort of recursive way right and 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 so that's already happening a little bit um, but we kind of want to explore those kind of options where the user can naturally use the product and that way let us know like which link is more relevant to a query on a query by query basis rather than like a macro level okay this domain is more important than the other and i'm going to tell that because that's like a bigger decision to make right it's sort of like a decision that we're kind of making as a information service provider that like one domain is more important than the other and those are hard decisions and i also don't want to be making those decisions personally but uh because like you know like you could say at a level about like journals, like New York Times is more important than Wall Street Journal or like Forbes or Fortune. Which one do you really trust in terms of the information that's coming from each of these sites? And what if they have different views of the same thing? And you kind of want to like channel the thing rather than making a decision of like who you want to channel. Interesting. So I, I wondered if there are any challenges or opportunities around this new modality, right? So rather than the traditional user interface, like on Google, where everything is yeah. segmented out, in a way, that's quite good. Because if you're doing attention metadata, advertising, clicking, and so on, you, you've got everything represented as an entity, whereas yeah. now we have text. And so I think, first of all, from an advertising point of view, people might find it a bit creepy if advertising is injected into the text. But similarly, mm -hmm. if part of the text specifically is a problem, at the moment, it's just a block of text. But maybe the next step would be to automatically segment the text into segments and then give me the opportunity to say, well, that particular thing is not relevant for what I've said and kind of hook that back into the learning process. Yeah. I think we want to do something like this, obviously. Uh, the right UI needs to be figured out where it's sort of interesting, right? What you're saying is sort of uh, blurring the boundaries between a text editor and a search UI, where you're just consuming information on the second and you're sort of editing and iterating information on the first. 
And we're already sort of doing that in some sense where you can remove some links and things like that, edit, editing the queries and curating them in your repository of past threads. So we are more already like a Dropbox or Notion kind of interface than just typical Google. So that's already new. This is all happening because of the power of LLMs. And like earlier, you had this sort of rigid interface where the retrieval engine and the ranking engine is just giving you a bunch of links, right? There's no edits that you can perform on top of the existing UI. Um, so I think we, I think your idea of like even going more granular where you can even like change parts of the snippets that you think are more relevant and things like that would be more interesting. Obviously, we don't want to make the user work so hard to get the answer. Uh, part of the job of the AI is to like minimize the work for the user so that the user is just consuming and learning stuff pretty quickly. But there's this aspect of viewing it as a co-pilot for learning where yeah. you're like working together with the perplexity AI and then quickly getting up to speed on things, but you're okay to put in some amount of work to get to the answer. Yeah. And earlier so, that work would be opening 10 tabs on Chrome and reading through all the links and so on. And now the work may be more like, uh, like sort of like search as if it was programming where you're like taking a bunch of text from different links and like highlighting what you want and so on. And the UI has to really be so good that you enjoy it rather than it being cumbersome. And that's why I feel like it's an, it's, it's an amazing product and a platform to build. And then I, I also want it to be such that if you, Tim, put, put in the effort to do this for the same query, somebody might ask in future, like um, they shouldn't have to do it. They, they can benefit from the work you've already done. And if there's a way to reward you for that, that'd be great. Uh, Wikipedia has this sort of system in place where, you know, like the edits performing one user is benefiting the article being read by another user after that. But there's no monetary reward. People are doing it for the nonprofit mission. Um, if there's a way to sort of inject some capitalism into this, but retain the truth-centric incentives that are fu fundamentally core to the platform then that'll be great and we want to kind of figure that out yeah um we'll move to the to the truth bit next but the 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 one other thing i wanted to comment on which you're touching on now which is most exciting to me is that um perplexity has at, at a, as a first class the trajectory of the search and discovery process and yeah. what i mean by that maybe we should start off by describing what google does google is basically stateless apart from the page that you're on and this is the reason why people tend to have a hundred google tabs open right because you search for one thing and then you open it in a new window and then in your brain you've got to kind of like marshal all this information okay well now i've got this tree and i'm one step down in perplexity you do the whole thing in a in a personalized interface and also you you marry search and discovery so you start off traversing and then you suggest potential you know new routes of traversal and the way that your algorithm learns is with traversal as a first class citizen so you're actually saying that was an interesting traversal that's not an interesting traversal so the system gets better and better over time so mm -hmm. i think that's probably the most exciting thing from a learning perspective because yeah. it's completely personalized to me yeah yeah we we used to think about this in the company as a dynamic personalized wikipedia for everybody um as a kid i love wikipedia i think most nerds love wikipedia as kids they probably still do um and we all have this thing of going to wikipedia rabbit holes where we start in a page and then we keep clicking on the hyperlinks and 
it keeps opening up new tabs and we're just like, oh, like I was just two hours on Wikipedia. It used to be the TikTok for nerds, I guess. Uh, and then, um, so I really wanted to bring that sort of experience perplexity. We, as a team, we really wanted to do that. And, um, and that's sort of why we made so many good product decisions around like suggesting good follow-up questions, uh, making sure that the answers have hyperlinks and some entities and you can just click on them and they'll be contextualized in the context of your previous queries. It's not like giving you a separate answer for the new entity. And that sort of gives you this engagement loop of asking more and more. And in fact, like we, uh, the first we launched, we, we did only had the support for one query and then we shipped the conversational thing and that let people ask follow-ups and then the percentage of threads that would go into a follow-up was pretty low, like 20% maybe. But then once we ship more and more features like adding related questions, follow-up suggestions and like entity links in the answer, that percentage is shot up to 40%. So it was pretty clear that if you made the process of asking a follow-up even easier for the user, the user enjoys like learning more. And like my own experience on the platform right now, like yesterday I was kind of trying to learn more about companies, um, just like how venture debt financing works, equity financing works and which companies have done it in the past and things like that. And like, I just realized my thread was like 25 questions. It was pretty insane. Like, you know, like this sort of experience just wouldn't exist otherwise. And if you were to do Wikipedia, then you would have to open all these different tabs and it's just one article written for everybody. Whereas here it's like personalized to what you really want to learn. So it sort of allows you to zoom in and learn more at a, at a fine grain detail, but also zoom out and come at a macro level and connect dots across like bigger picture things. And it's amazing in terms of like learning so fast, right? So that's the experience yeah. we wanted to provide. Yeah, it's, I mean, in a way we learned a similar lesson from Instagram. So in when, you, when you're developing an app, every single bit of friction is attrition. So you make something easy because it's not like I didn't think it was that difficult to do research before, but it's a lack of imagination because we didn't know anything better. So now you have this system where people can click and click and click. It's extremely pedagogical and they can and they can learn about things. And it's remarkable, actually, that just a small change could could lead to such a dramatic difference in, in how people learn and, and consume information. But um, I wanted to get to the whole concept of objective truth and, and mm -hmm. related topics. So I guess one one take would be, oh, I want to create a personalized Wikipedia, which only gives objective facts about the world. But is yeah. that too ambitious and would that even work? I think it's very ambitious. Uh, firstly, Wikipedia is not a source of truth either. Um, by the way, the... The whole language model revolution was kicked off with uh, Wikipedia, right? Like Wikipedia is a big reason why BERT was so good. And BERT was sort of the inflection point and it'll be for everybody to switch to transformers that are pre-trained on a lot of data. And then it evolved to things like Common Crawl and like Reddit and things like that over time, right? So I do think Wikipedia is probably the most fruitful platform if if you want to give them the credit to that. And that's an amazing thing because even though there are like opinions on how like Wikipedia has all these weird kind of edits that preserve certain kind of opinions and things like that, 
it is still the most authoritative source of knowledge on the internet. Uh, and uh, a lot of the links that get cited on Wikipedia are pretty high authoritative sources of information. Um, so creating something that's a dynamic, personalized version of some such a good platform and maintaining the truthfulness aspect is very hard. Um, the reason truth is hard is because fundamentally we don't know what is truth ourselves right like it's a it's an iterative process like we think one day that covid vaccines are essential and we all go and get it then there are research papers written on the harmful effects of covid vaccines and then um there's always this debate of like whether getting covid is the best way to getting immune to it versus actually taking doses of vaccines and there's always like a healthy debate of like oh is it in the interest of the um vaccine providers to you know like keep selling you that that right so and the origins of the covid vaccine virus still like debated so all these things are like okay then if you are a perplexity if you're, you're if you're an answer engine what should you be doing here right like you you should provide as many diverse opinions as possible in the form of citations and leave it to the end user to sort of learn and that's sort of your your job sort of done there but what if the user expects you to make that process also even easier for you? Like that process of going and reading all these articles and then coming to conclusions of their own. Like ideally the AI should help them there too, right? And so that's like an even bigger challenge. Like like sort of algorithmic truth is a very hard problem. And I feel like it's even beyond the scope of GPT-4 right now uh, to, to sort of figure out what is really the ultimate truth in something when there's like so many different opinions and research articles that have like different conclusions and so on. And I feel like it's, it's something we can only truly solve with more progress in AGI. That is an LLM that can sort of have really long context loop and keep reasoning for itself and going back and forth between two different conclusions and trying to arrive at the right conclusion by collecting more evidence and so on. Yeah. I mean, that there's, there's two things there. I mean, first of all, one of the reasons why Noam Chomsky doesn't like language models is that he hates probability. And there are folks who are causal determinists. So, you know, Chomsky thinks basically we should have a causal deterministic model of the world. And they would argue that science is about deduction. It's not about prediction. And only when you have a deduction can you generate mm -hmm. new facts and knowledge and verify information and so on. That's what all the GoFi people always used to say. The world is much more gnarly than that, unfortunately. And, and that's why language models work so well. But yeah. um, it does lead to the question of whether, you know, theoretically, whether it's ever possible to get truthful information from a language model. And, and also, I, wa I want to also steer a little bit towards... Um, should these models and should perplexity be opinionated and that might be a form of personalization so it might be this yeah. person has these values these interests these previous interactions is it okay to be opinionated yeah we've been thinking about this actually i mean this is all relevant in the context of the whole truth gpt and you know like trying to make sure that the ais are truthful and my opinion here is that being politically correct is not very well aligned with being truthful. I think we all agree to that, actually. Like, there is a reason that if someone's not politically correct, people like them more. 
maybe they don't like them personally if they say things that they don't agree with, but they at least are interested in listening to that person. Um, and that's sort of why people tend to like always notice when Elon Musk speaks, maybe because he has these um, opinions, right? Like it's not maybe he's wrong, but he actually has opinions. And recently, I was reading something that Mark Zuckerberg said, which is like. You can only say meaningful things if what you say and the opposite of that, opposite of what you say are both, you know, agreeable. Like, like there should be a fraction of people who agree with what you say and there should be a fraction of people who agree with the opposite of what you said. And that's when you actually have said anything meaningful. Otherwise, it's just platitude, right? If you're going to say something that's just objectively true, that's not interesting to anybody. Uh, so... Then it sort of comes down to like, okay, what is the mission of an answer engine? Is it to just sort of teach people facts that are already true? Then in that case, opinion and a fact are both the same. So there is no problem there. Like if you're asking how like equity financing works, like you just have to explain as if, you know, how it is in a rule book, right? But if you're asking things that are not fully understood yet, um, Having an opinion is fine as long as it doesn't spread misinformation. Like, as long as users are clear that this is an opinion and not a fact, and that has to be prefaced carefully, then then it's probably fine to have an opinion. And then it's pretty important to make sure that your opinions are uh, possibly possibly corrected by with more evidence that users can add on the platform. And if and, and so then it comes down to a question of incentives, like why why do you need to have certain opinions? Like if you're baking in a prompt to have certain opinions, like what is a prompt you would bake in, right? Into the LLM. Um, and so all these things are very complicated. And so the simplest solution is to say, oh yeah, I'm just gonna channelize everyone's opinion and give you the sort of a lawyer's answer. But that makes the product a little boring also. So actually, I don't know. Maybe I've been thinking about all these and like, there's no good answer to truth or opinions and stuff. Because when your, your goal is to sort of provide facts as well. Like this whole range of queries where you just have to like be correct because it's already scientifically true or something. And yeah, um, yeah I've been thinking about this. I, I still don't have a good answer. Yeah, and when I play with GPT-4, if you get it to generate creative scripts, for example, they're typically not very creative. They tend to kind of like yeah. go on to railroads. So they'll either sound like a TED Talk or they'll sound very formal and very dry. And actually, um, when we say someone has a charisma bypass, it's because they sound formal. And that's how we're expected to behave in, in the office. But as you say, there's there's something yeah. more than that. And there was that film, The Social Dilemma, where they were talking about the success of, of um, Facebook. And a lot of that is because of the echo chambers and because it deliberately fractionated people into um, cohorts of subjective belief, which was their truth. And that's very engaging for people. But I guess like perplexity, you almost need to kind of like there's a real problem around misinformation. So is it possible yeah. to have subjective truth, but also take a strong position on misinformation? Yeah, I think we already took a strong position on misinformation. Like we are not going to channelize any answer without citations. And none of the cited links are written by anybody in the company. It's written by people in the world. And so 
people cannot accuse us of misinformation because number one we cite whatever we say and despite the citation if we get a hallucination wrong uh, we have been transparent about queries where we actually have hallucinated and that's actually why we took the step to allow the user to remove certain links that think is hallucinating the answer and we're also going to allow users to add more links themselves to add further context like sort of community notes and twitter um so i think we are trying our best to make sure there's no way any shared link on perplexity uh spreads misinformation um this is not the case with chat gpt by the way like if you share a screenshot of chat gpt to somebody who thinks ai is all-knowing and it's pretty good uh it's very confidently bullshitting a lot there in terms of what says um makes up links makes up facts and it's pretty convincing actually so if you don't know much about that area or topic you might even believe it that's actually why we want our ui to be also more popular like people should want citations people should ask for like okay no make sure this is actually reasonably correct and um my feeling is that there'll be a bifurcation in the market in terms of people wanting for open-ended creative made up stuff just for the entertainment aspect and or or writing tasks and things like that and then people wanting just a source of knowledge and facts and like that sort of like us and i think like the the market will sort of bifurcate there in terms of you know there, there's always like an like an entertainment entertaining aspect of creating deep fakes or fake stuff right like as long as it doesn't get misused and and then there's the aspect of making sure you can go and learn stuff. Like like you say, you Googled it, like you want to make sure what you read is correct. And we, we are focusing more on the second market. Yeah, I mean, people talk about the, the threat of large language models, but as you say, there's going to be a, a plurality of large language models. So there'll be ones yeah. for different purposes. Because I, I don't know whether you wanted to comment on that, but there was that recent AI moratorium. And yeah. I personally think that this technology could revolutionize society, especially around education. But with the misinformation, there's an education piece, there's a transparency piece. We need to teach kids to have you know skepticism, to have an inquiring mind. We might need to develop technology to detect things are detected by language models but you know you can't uninvent something this is this is happening now so yeah. what do you think we need to do to embrace this new kind of digital society so i think that uh first of all i i actually think most of the functionalities that people use ChatGPT for were, was available one year ago right but in the form of the open ai playground it's just that the accessibility to the average person in the world dramatically changed in the form of the chatbot UI. Um, sure, the ChatGPT is even better in being human-like and carrying out the conversations with RLHF and things like that. But if you notice most of the screenshots, they are just like instruction prompts. Do me this or like, write me a poem in the style of this or something like that. And like that's that was available one year ago. Like you knew it if you were an AI and like I knew it. Um, so I, I think that part has just proliferated so so much and people are getting scared for their jobs and people are getting scared for homeworks and how children are even going to like have an incentive to learn stuff. So I do think like releasing ChatGPT or GPT-4 was good in that sense. Because if we took even longer, 
the gap between what is possible and what people think was possible would have just widened even more. And then if that gap keeps widening more, the fear of the average person in the public would increase. So the more frequent we are in releasing things and communicating to people and getting them up to speed to what is actually possible in AI and educating them, uh, that has a positive effect in making sure that the average public is not scared of AI. Because when people are scared, there's paranoia and like all sorts of weird things happen, right? Um, so that's the that, that that's sort of my argument for making sure we have these frequent iterative deployments and keep learning from what public thinks. Uh, that said, I'm all I, I I definitely agree with you on the concerns about like you know impact and jobs and like future of learning and like what kind of jobs should kids even seek in future? Um, how would programming look like? How would writing look like? And like what happens to all the sales and marketing people? Is any profession free? Uh, like, like, is the CEO job even free? Like, if you think about it, like, what is the CEO? Do they just make decisions with all the data available? And like, if all that can be written clearly with in natural language and fed into an LLM, it can do all these things for you, right? So my thinking around this is, it's a little utopian. I feel like the progress in LLMs will push all of us to have ultimate cl clarity of thought. Like, just like how using Google was a skill once upon a time, talking to these language models, like they even call these as language model whisperers, will become a skill. And to make best use of them, you actually have to have really good clarity of thought and, and good taste in selecting the right prompts or the right completions and things like that. And so the, the same kind of professions will exist um, humans will find creative joy in being creative and like doing new things. But in order to be really successful at it, they need to be using these AI tools. And in order to make best use of these AI tools, they need to be really clear in their head what they want out of these tools. And that will push all of us to be very good first principle thinkers and have good clarity of thought. And that's actually good for the planet because that way people have more rationality in them and do less bad things. So that's sort of my utopian view around it. But I, I completely agree with you that it can be used for political misinformation, like powerful moving speeches that can antagonize like a section of the population against each other and things like that. And we obviously need to be able to detect if people are doing these things and yeah. make sure we educate the public about it. I mean, that resonates a lot with me, but because it's so easy to generate rousing speeches, it's similar with AI art, that the value of it has almost gone down because the, the scarcity has gone down. It's easy to produce exactly. this kind of content. Yeah. But um, I wondered whether you had an opinion on, I mean, for example, I use language models all day, every day, and they are quite complex beasts and they behave differently in different situations. And I now intuit that. The information in the context is very high resolution. The more grounded it is, the less likely it is to hallucinate. With perplexity, it's very grounded. It's grounded yeah. on actual search results. But I just wondered whether your intention is to abstract away the inner workings or kind of educate users on when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, I think we want to educate them and like we are trying our best, even show, telling people where it works well and doesn't work well. 
Um, and we also think that the long tail of cases where it doesn't work well will slowly get like smaller and smaller as models become more capable, our index becomes more rich, and we understand more from the failure use case and address that through engineering. Um, yeah, so, so the only thing I would say is perplexity is like sort of like this educated uncle kind of product, right? Like it, the persona is more like this knowledgeable person who's just going to be as accurate or correct as possible. And personas and interestingness might also be an aspect of this. Like, for example, we did this April Fool's joke of putting out all the answers in the form of like Shakespearean poems or raps. And people complained about it saying like, hey, I'm doing my homework, like stop like wasting my time because it was a weekend and they were doing the homework using perplexity. So, you know, like sometimes you might think, oh, you, you kind of have to make the product more interesting and have a persona. Um, but then people come to your product for a certain specific goal and like you have to serve that, right? Yeah, um, because when I when I read books, um, it's, you know, the experience is enmeshed in the subject of experience I'm having at the time. I'm on the train. Um, I had certain social experiences. I yeah. went to London, you know, and my brain, because obviously there's objective information and you can distill it down and you can personalize it and that's all great. But it's almost like you need to have some subjective experience in there to help people learn. Yeah. I think there is some 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 aspect of leaving a mark on the mind of the user that wants them that makes them keep coming back to it and like feeling a sense of like like happiness when using your product or something. Like like if Kindle was just a book, like you know they they do these subtle things of the reading time and like the the light, the level of brightness on the screen and things like that. And I listen to Jeff Bezos speak about this, like how like. You know, they really wanted it to make it look like an actual book, even though it's a digital device. And like, so that it kindles the memories of, you know, you reading from a book. So I, I do think like those kinds of aspects we can work on in perplexity too. Um, and we are going to try as much as possible to make the process of learning and asking questions fun, but at, not at the cost of saying wrong things. Yeah. I mean, from a user experience point of view, um, there are little things like the way you stream the text is, is oh, very, yeah. very cool. Things like the, um, the the speech recognition is really cool. In the future, maybe you could add like TTS in, in really, yeah. really cool. And all, all of these things kind of like completely change the way I comprehend and experience the information. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I think it's not just the TTS aspect, but the whole voice to voice thing. If you're like, having your phone in your pocket and you're walking and you're like mm. talking to somebody and you, you have your AirPods on and you just ask like, Hey, perplexity, like, you know, what, what is actually the, the secret behind like, you know, our chef, like I'm talking to a friend of mine and I don't completely understand it. And he wants me to explain it to both of us. And then like, we just stream the answer and like talk speaking in a nice human like voice. That's, that experience is just going to be surreal, right? Especially when it's almost going to be right. And not going to be a mouthful speaking like a huge paragraph, but like really concise answers. That's just going to be incredible. And like, and if you want more, you, you just keep asking more. And, and, and 
if the whole thing works, speech recognition, TTS, and like the LLM aspects all chained together, that's literally like having an incredibly knowledgeable professor in your pocket or something, right? Like it's pretty insane. It's, it's going to be a game changer. On-demand I mean, access. I, I, yeah. yeah. Well, I can give you an example. I mean, I've been using this app called Readwise that I've just discovered. So I can click on an article and then it's in my phone. And I was driving to the airport this morning and I played the article with TTS on the phone. And I'm sure you've had this experience when you're in the shower or you're in the car yeah. and you listen to an audio book. And yeah. my, my God, it's a completely different experience. You're not distracted. You're in the flow state. And imagine yeah. being able to just have a conversation with your professor in your pocket while you're in the car. Yeah. And, and and it could not just be a professor, but could even be like some famous person you admire. If it's sort of ingested everything that they have said in the internet and their person and the biography and things like that. Um, like I might want to have a conversation with Larry Page. It's like the most elusive tech CEO that nobody knows anything about. And then if I have access to all the books that have been written about him and all his interviews that he's given in the 90s and 2000s, I'm, I'm, and, and in all the current context of what's going on in the world, I might just be like, hey, Larry, what do you actually think about ChatGPT? What, 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 you know, how, how are you going to respond about it? This is an imaginary conversation, but like, I'm sure people would love to have that. And if it can talk in his voice back to me, that would be even more incredible, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think all these things are going to happen. And like, I'm super excited about the possibilities, the, the advances, what's possible. And yeah, we should, we should fear the bad parts too. I, I'm not saying only good can be done here. But there's so much good to be done here that it's just exciting. Yeah, exactly. And and also, it's a little bit like when DJs do mixes, they're kind yeah. of creating novelty, right? Because when you remix information, you're bring, it's not an old book anymore, because you might be representing it in a different style, you might be mixing in context or stuff about that particular profile. And you're making things interesting and engaging that wouldn't otherwise be, which is which is fascinating. But um, I, I wanted just to move a little bit to, to some technical stuff. So, um, first of all, like, what are you thinking about the future of language models? And, and also, do you remember that Lacoon recently put that slide out where he said there are these exponentially diverging trajectories and autoregressive models are doomed? I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, I, I don't think he's wrong machine learning wise. Like, he's just saying that if you do behavior cloning alone, uh, there'll be a distribution mismatch between what you trained on and what you tested because um, there there will be this sort of uh, compounding errors problem that once you get one action in the trajectory wrong, um, then that drifts you into a completely different part of the state space and then, then you get more actions wrong and then you get more actions wrong and they just completely go off ramp. Um, so that's, that's a fair argument. The, the thing that he's actually missing though is that number one, as we pre-train these models on so much data, like trillions of tokens, the amount of data efficiency you gain for the behavior cloning step is just immense that like you actually don't need that much data. Uh, the distribution will be covered with very little data. The estimates will be much better. And there is this additional RLHF step that you can generate infinite data if you have a good reward model or 
Anthropic's new constitutional AI stuff that samples, you know, different principles and has like not just one scalar reward, but, you know, like several scalars that you can create on the fly. You're just basically creating infinite data for free with the reward model, right? For trajectories. And then you're doing RLHF. So that's sort of like doing the inverse RL step. Like you're running a reward model and then um, updating the, your policy against it. And once these two things are done, like, the compounding error problem is no longer a problem. It's exactly how RL solves things. Like obviously RL tries to maximize the coverage of the state space by generating enough data for itself. And that's the advantage of using a reward model. You can just can generate infinite data. And once you have infinite data, like nothing is an actual problem. So that's my uh, comment on the Lekun thing. And yeah, I, I don't think autoregressiveness is a problem at all. It applies to any kind of generative model where like you don't have sufficient data you know, data coverage, basically. Okay, but maybe you could comment on the performance of it. So GPT-4, for example, is amazing, but especially yeah. if you run it non-interactively, you might be doing um, reflection or auto-GPT or something like that. It's just really, really slow. Do you think mm -hmm. the autoregressive thing in particular, because obviously you can't parallelize it, is, is that slowing it down? Um, I think you could maybe do blockwise, you know, like you could decode many tokens at once and things like that. Um, but, but the auto GPT-4 is slow for two reasons, right? Like one is just the size of the model itself. It's probably a lot larger than 3.5. And, um, so that's obviously going to be a lot of computation, whether it's autoregressive or not, for every new thing you decode. But it's certainly exciting to think about like non-autoregressive models or like blocky autoregressive models and things like that. And um, as for the, the specific comment about AutoGPT itself, um, I think people will be willing to wait for an output if the value of the output is so high. Like if you just ask somebody to go do background research on non-autoregressive generative models because you, Tim, had no time to do that yourself, and they came back to you one hour later with such a lucid explanation of the best techniques there and like what really makes it work and what is causing it to still lag behind in terms of being state-of-the-art compared to autoregressive models you would like still like that you would be like okay fine i'm happy to wait for one the, what you came up with is pretty insane that saved me like 100 hours of time so one hour i pay for is like worth it i saved 99 hours still and yeah and i feel I like auto gpt kind of things will if will sort of usher that future where you would basically just pay for it with your time and you would even like and if your time is worth so much, you would actually be willing to pay for the software too. That, well, yeah, I was going to go there. So um, I've written some kind of reflection type GPT-4 code because I realized I was using GPT and I was just doing all of this mundane stuff. There's an error, feed it back in. There's an error, feed it back in. And, and it gets better over time because it has this kind of emergent understanding. There's something really fascinating about iteration and just watching the understanding emerge over several steps. But I don't want to be the guy doing that interactively. 
So imagine if there was like a version of perplexity where it knows that yeah. I'm interested in a particular topic and it can just spin off and do this research and just reflect and reflect and consolidate and refine. And then yeah. it can kind of present back this research to me the next day. Yeah, I think we do need to build the ultimate research and knowledge assistant. And that's just going to make... See, people hire these analysts, research analysts for like hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in hedge funds and, you know, like capital allocation funds or like research assistants in a PhD lab just because the PI or the person running that fund doesn't have time to go and do all the work themselves. And that's going to become available in the form of an on-demand software. You just pay like 10 or $20 a month. That's crazy, right? Think about it. So I think it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's just going to be insane. And the whole world has just become a lot smarter. Uh, it's sort of like what the iPhone did. Now, you and I can use the same iPhone as Elon Musk. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just 1000 to $2,000, right? So imagine the same power is brought for intelligence, like like IQ. Anybody has access to the smartest person on the planet. Elon has access to the smartest people. Sam has access to the smartest people because they can hire them to work at OpenAI or Tesla or Twitter. But if all that is just available to anybody in the world, where intelligence itself is something that's commoditized, that's a crazy world we'd be living in, right? And, and then the starting point is to like, at least one aspect of intelligence is to be able to research anything and be able to distill what you learned into like something concise and useful to the user in a personalized way and allow them to keep learning more iteratively by asking you more and more questions. And even work as a science pilot, if you can, if you may call that, like a science pilot, where you're like not just coming back after one hour, because that might be unreliable, but you can come back frequently with like saying, "Hey, this is what I learned. Like, can you help me more?" And like you, you give it more feedback along the way, and it learns. And over time, it has enough feedback from so many users that it can fill up these chain of thought itself and reason for itself like all these things are going to be possible very soon and gpt4 will make it possible and you should also prepare for a world where gpt4 is much faster and cheaper and things like that with the hardware and other advances and yeah i'm already imagining the world is going to get there and making my decisions on like how we work on things at perplexity based on that yeah i'm thinking the whole world of note taking will be revolutionized because yeah. we'll all have our own personal knowledge stores. Because in a way, it won't be so much going out to the internet anymore. My personal agent would have already amassed my own personal knowledge store. And I'll be able to kind of interrogate that directly through my agent and, and maybe not even go out to the internet that often. Yeah, I hope so. And yeah. I hope like we, we all have like a knowledge hub and it doesn't have to be on the cloud. It could be on our local device. I mean, maybe it should be on the cloud for you know, security and encryption and things like that. But um, I hope we don't have to go much to the internet. I hope we all have this power of the internet packaged into a quantized language model that just runs on a very powerful local chip on our device and then allows us to just keep becoming smarter and not waste much time. That would be incredible. Amazing. 
Well, Aravind, it's been an absolute honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim. Cool. Right.